We're really in the practical portion of Colossians. This is application, 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 and it really turns on to husbands and wives and the family next week. Uh, we're working through verses 15 through 17 today. So one more time, we're in Colossians chapter 3, beginning of verse 15. This is the reading of God's living and infallible word. The Apostle Paul writes, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And as we come to this concluding section that began all the way back in verse 1, Paul now looks at the qualities that should mark the lifestyle of the new self he's been talking about. In other words, now that we are clothed with the garments of grace that we looked at last week in verses 12 through 14, Paul now identifies three priorities, I'll call them, that should mark the life of every true believer. And you'll see these on the back of your bulletin. The first thing that Paul lists is the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ. Notice that there in verse 15, Paul says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This peace of Christ means he is the source of all of our peace. When we received Jesus Christ by faith, through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we received peace. We received the Prince of Peace. For all peace comes from Christ. In fact, there is no peace to be found apart from Christ. This world will offer you zero peace. This world will only offer you anxiety and worry and stress and tribulations. But in Christ, we have total peace. Now, the Bible uses peace in two different ways, and I'll just take a moment to expound upon this. There is objective peace and there is um, subjective peace. And both aspects are in view here. Objective peace is the peace that Jesus has established for us with God the Father. Okay? Before we were converted, we were not at peace with God. We were enemies of God. James 4.4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? And anyone who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so before we were born again, we had enmity in our hearts towards God. And as Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is angry with the wicked every day. 
And so clearly before being adopted into the family of God, we never really truly possessed any kind of true peace. But when we received Christ by faith, all of that changed. For at the cross, Jesus not only paid for our sins, but through his substitutionary death, he also established peace for us. In fact, we've already seen this back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, that says, Through Christ he reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through what? The blood of his cross. Therefore, as Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this object, this uh, objective peace is an eternal peace. It, it never changes. Um, you who have been justified by faith now have peace with God. You have peace with God. And that's a once-for-all accomplished work of Jesus Christ. The war between the believer and God is over, and the treaty has been paid for by the precious blood of Christ. Praise the Lord. And so the objective peace with God is definitely included in verse 15 here. But that's not the only peace that Paul's talking about here. He's also talking about subjective peace. And subjective peace is the peace that Jesus gives to believers in the midst of their difficulties and storms. I think of that great 14th chapter of John's gospel as Jesus comforts his disciples after telling them that he's leaving them, leaving them and he's going to return to the Father. Remember what he says to them in verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus shares his own peace with us so that his peace becomes our peace, and the effect of it is non-troubled, non-afraid hearts. And this subjective peace is incredibly practical, and it's what you and I need on a day-to-day -day basis as we go through life, and it's why Paul could say from, Rome, from a Roman prison cell, in the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this subjective peace is what protects our hearts and minds in times of trials and tribulation. Now I want you to notice something else. See that second word there, let, in verse 15. It says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This verbal construct is referred to as a third person imperative which appears in our new testament over several hundred times and let me kind of flush out what it means a, a second person imperative is when someone speaks directly to you and they say something like uh, hey uh, nick come here i, I want to talk to you for a minute i'm giving you a, a direct imperative i uh, i'm addressing you directly um, in English, we don't have a third-person imperative. Um, this is when you're not speaking to the thing you're commanding. 
you're speaking about the thing that you're commanding. It's a little funny to try to consider because it doesn't exist in the English. And when it's used in the New Testament, it's almost translated with the word let in our Bibles. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because let in, in English is, is ambiguous. For example, say if someone's knocking at the door and, and you say to your friend, um, let them in. Um, what you mean is you're, you're giving them permission to open the door and to, to let someone um, come in. It, it's a matter of, of permission or um, allowance. Or say if two people are arguing uh, in the Senate <laughs> and someone says, let Mr. Uh, so-and-so speak. That again is, is giving someone permission. But that's not the case here with this third person imperative. The closest thing we have in the English is say, um, <laughs> you're at the Olympics and you're in charge of saying, let the games begin. Um, you're not giving the runners permission to actually start the race. What you mean is start the games. It's time to start the games. You're not speaking to the thing you're commanding. You're speaking about the thing you're commanding, if, if that makes sense. That, that's the closest we get in our English to an imperative in the third person. And so we're in verse 15 when Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He's not talking about you allowing it per se. Um, and actually this shows up again in verse 16, the same thing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And both of these third person imperatives, Paul's commanding in a way that only the Greeks can. He's commanding the peace of Christ to rule in your hearts. He's commanding the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. But let's focus on what Paul says about the peace of Christ here first. What is um, this peace? Um, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 um, for a moment, as this has a, a lot of similarities with our text in Colossians 3, and I think it'll help expound upon it for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 18. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, and he's talking about the Gentiles here in relation to the Jewish people, you who once were far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So Christ is the one who through his own flesh and blood, both are mentioned here, uh, removed the hostility and, and has broken down the walls that existed between us and, and has created harmony between the Jew and the Greek as far as the, Jew, uh, as far as the church is concerned. Uh, verse 15, that has been removed by abolishing the law of commandments, expressing the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile us both to God. So now we've got the, the vertical dimension as well as the horizontal dimension. He, he's made us both one new man in place of two, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So you've got verse 13, his blood, verse uh, 14, his flesh, verse 15, his cross, accomplishing this peace. End of verse 16, thereby killing the hostility. 
verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, what is at the foremost of Paul's mind concerning the peace of Christ? Unity. Unity within the body of Christ as he makes one new man. Unity uh, through Christ. We both have access to this peace in one spirit to the Father. And this is probably in mind also in our text in Colossians 3.15 here as Paul is writing this. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Why? To which indeed you were called in one body. Same language. One body. Peace in one body. The peace of Christ. So we see this has a, a unifying effect on the believers as the peace of Christ rules in our hearts to which you have been called to. Now in order to get all that's in this verse, we also have to address this word rule. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now this word rules from the Greek word um, brabeo. It's a very rare word. Actually, in fact, this is the only time it's used in all the New Testament, although the com compound form of it is used in Colossians actually 2, verse 18. You might remember where it says there, um, not to let the false teachers disqualify you. Okay, that's the compound form of it. And that's sort of the idea of this word rule, but not exactly. This word was used to describe the activity of an umpire in deciding the outcome of an athletic contest. Uh, for example, think of like the, the 100 meter uh, hurdle, right? If a runner leaves the uh, white lines of the track or knocks down too many of the hurdles, um, this person would d disqualify them. Um, but if you ran according to the, the rules and, and you won the race, there would be an umpire or a judge at the end of the meet that would reward the winner. And so Paul is saying, what Paul is saying here is that we must let the peace of Christ act as a ruling empire in our hearts. Okay? Meaning the peace of Christ is what's rendering its verdict in our hearts. If we make a decision and step out of bounds and leave the track and disobey the will of God, there is a forfeiting of peace that happens. When sin moves in, the peace of Christ moves out. But if we will run the race that God has set before us with pure hearts and, and obey the rules of the race, there will be a great reward. And that reward is the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts. Incredibly practical. And so the moment that you put off the old self with his practices, verse 9, verse 10, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, we entered into a, a new state of peace. The weight of sin and, and shame and, and guilt has been all taken away, and the blood of Jesus Christ has washed away our sins, and there came peace flooding in our heart and into our soul, and now acts as an arbiter and holds sway over our hearts. To have the peace of Christ rule in your hearts is a settled calm in the midst of the storms of life, and it comes from trusting and obeying Christ. And then to maintain a peaceful heart, Paul adds at the end of verse 15, and be thankful. 
and be thankful. You know, being thankful has been a consistent theme for Paul all throughout this letter. Back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, when we were just opening this book, Paul said, we always thank God the Father for our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. We thank God for you when we pray for you. Uh, he mentions it again in uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. Paul giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Again, giving thanks to God for your salvation. We thank God for your salvation. And in chapter 2, verse 7, he says to be abounding in thanksgiving. And so like Paul, who regardless of what his circumstances were, we also have so much to be thankful for. I mean, few have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, right? And that the peace of Christ rules in your hearts, to which you have been sovereignly called in one body. You, beloved, have so much to be thankful for. We can be thankful for God's call upon our life. We can be thankful for this peace that he has graciously given to us. And we can be thankful for our new identity as believers in Christ. Well, that was just the first priority of the new self, the, the peace of Christ. Paul has two more to share with us. The next priority is the word of Christ. The word of Christ. This was one of the easier outlines I've ever had to do. Notice it right there in verse 16. Paul writes, and let the word of Christ dwell in you rich, richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now here, the word of Christ, I think, refers not just to um, the Bible as a whole, but rather the revelation of Scripture, which focuses on Christ himself. And so let the word of Christ, the message that centers on Christ, let that dwell in you richly. Let that find a home in your heart. It's referring to the truth about the person and the work of Jesus Christ the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the deity and humanity that was the first two chapters of Colossians of Christ. And it's referring to the truth about the saving mission of Christ, his redemptive mission. It's the teaching about Christ. That as you read your Bible, you need to be cautiously aware of Jesus Christ. I like to call this um, Bible, the hymn book. It's all about him. It's all about him. He's the hero of the story. He is the dominant subject of scripture. He exists in all sorts of shadows and pictures and types an endless, endless stream of it. In Luke 24, 27, you have the two disciples. Great story. Walking on the road to Emmaus, defeated, having heard that the Christ has been killed and crucified, and suddenly Jesus shows up, though veiled. And the Bible says that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. 
started with the law, the five books of Moses. He went through the prophets and he says, these point ahead to me. The word needs to saturate your entire life. It needs to soak it up. The word richly means two things. First, it means abundantly. It's the idea of lots of it. Lots of it. In other words, don't just start your day with the verse of the day. Let the word of Christ dwell in you abundantly. The more, the better. Okay? Doctor's orders. And then the second meaning here is realize that the word of Christ contains treasures. The word is filled with treasures. We see this in Proverbs and in Colossians and actually back in Colossians chapter 2 verse 2 he prays for the believers that their hearts may be encouraged and, and uh, when we studied this word it meant strengthened being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and of, of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ in whom are hidden, look, all the treasures, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, when the word of Christ dwells in you richly and has permeated every aspect of the believer's life, this rich treasure begins to govern every area of your life. It is the handle to which the Spirit of God turns the will of man towards the glory of God. And then the word dwell means to live in, uh, to be at home in, to be given the run of the house. That's what it's talking about here. Calls up, Paul calls upon believers to let the word of Christ take up residence, to be in every room in the house, free range of their lives. Let it control and govern your thought life, your work life, your church life, your home life, every area of your life. And how would you do that? By constantly reading about Christ and studying the scriptures about Christ and meditating upon the truths of Christ. In fact, that's what Paul told us at the beginning of this chapter, isn't it? He said in, back in Colossians chapter 3, uh, 1 through 2, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking. Keep seeking the things above. Why? That's where Christ is. Seek Christ, not just the things above. Seek Christ. Where is he? He's seated at the right hand of God. We see the sovereignty of God ruling and reigning, putting all of his enemies under his feet as a footstool. In fact, it's so good. He basically repeats it in verse 2. Set your mind on the things above. Set your mind there. Not on the things that are on the earth. So we have to have a, a, a preoccupation with Christ. He's to be the dominant thought in our minds. And as 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we are to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. If Christ fills our hearts and minds, he is to be the controlling factor in our lives. 
So this necessitates that we learn about Christ, that we love Christ, that we want to live for Christ. And as we continue in verse 16, Paul mentions two specific results of the word of Christ dwelling in the believer. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now we all know obviously what teaching is, and here it simply refers to the impartation of truth. The impartation of truth, it means to make truth clear. This speaks of teaching of the scriptures, obviously. Um, and it's not limited, limited to here uh, preachers only. See that one another down there? Towards the end of the verse, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's not just a random couple words thrown in there. This could be anyone who's teaching, say, in your discipleship group, over coffee, whatever. And then the next word is admonishing, and this word means to exhort, to urge someone, even to warn someone of the consequences of their, their sin. And both are the result of a life just overflowing with the word of Christ. You're not going to exhort or, or admonish or teach anyone if you're not in the word. And then next it says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And wisdom deals with the application of the truth about Christ. How all this works out in our daily lives in a, in a practical way. Knowledge is the truth about Christ. Wisdom is the application of that knowledge in our daily lives. We need to be discerning in how to apply God's word. Now, having the word of Christ dwell in you richly produces not only a, a godly knowledge and wisdom, but also love and thanksgiving and joy in the Holy Spirit. Don't you just love a, a good cup of coffee sitting down studying God's word? Or gather together with a couple of brothers and sisters. Man, I just get off on it. In fact, uh, so much so that it generates in verse 16, singing. Singing. You got people like me singing. <laughs> singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And what are we looking at here at the end of verse 6? What we're looking at at the end of verse 16 is really describing what happens when the church comes together and we sing as the body of Christ. And I think that's in view here. Now, there's a, a twofold dimension to, to all singing. There's the, the vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension. And the horizontal dimension, as we sing, actually ministers to one another. As we are encouraging one another, as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But there's also the vertical dimension because ultimately, while it's a blessing that we encourage one another, ultimately we are singing um, praises to an audience of one. And that is God. Now I want you to notice what it is that we are called to sing. There's a diversity here that I think is pretty awesome. 
We're to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let's take a moment, just look at each one of these. Simply stated, a psalm basically refers to the Old Testament Psalter, the, the book of Psalms. And a psalm is scripture set to music. That could be one of the definitions. Um, originally, a psalm was sung and accompanied by a um, plucked instrument, usually, uh, typically a, a harp, but a piano laying on its back is essentially a harp anyways. <laughs> but at the temple, there was a, a choir. You have the choir. In fact, you read about the um, references to the choir master. And, and people who have studied this stuff say that many of the songs were, were accompanied by incredibly sophisticated musical arrangements with all sorts of instruments. Um, there's been some um, interesting archaeological, archaeological discoveries over the last 20 years or so. And, and then quickly, there's also a section to note uh, I learned a while ago. Um, Psalms 113 to 118, those are referred to as the Hillels. And um, this is a set of songs that would be sung by the people as they made their pilgrimage um, to the yearly Passover celebration as they would go up to Jerusalem and, and as they... Um, traveled in their family caravan lines, um, they would sing these praises and um, they would sing the psalms in remembrance and praise to God's faithfulness as, as the Lord had delivered their people out of Egyptian bondage and just the faithfulness of God. So it says singing psalms and then the next is hymns and, and this word simply means a song of praise to God, a hymn, now, you might not remember this, but I mentioned it back in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, while we were in it, a glorious section of Scripture, where many scholars believe, and I tend to agree, that this was very likely an early hymn of the church. That was sung by the church, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. In fact, I'll tell you another one. Historians believe Philippians chapter 2, that great chapter, verses 6 to 11, was also a hymn. And so hymns are an expression of praise to God based on biblical truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's a hymn. Listen, beloved, as we sing songs, number one, about who God is, and number two, about what God has done, these are the area of focus that bring truth and joy and praise to the Lord. And that's what we see here in the text. Because there's a lot of churches who sing all different um, styles of, of songs and, and, and have different ideas about it. And, um, and a lot of people decide what church you're going to attend based on whether or not you play or sing the style of song that they, they uh, want to sing. But scripturally, the Bible actually gives us a wide variety of styles of music to praise God with. What we don't see in scripture is songs grounded in scripture that's what will happen songs that are not grounded in scripture is what is pretty much the thing that's going on in the quote-unquote church today they're not worried about the words being grounded in biblical truths and that's the danger that's where you've gone off the off the rails okay and so in order to please God, each word needs to be grounded in truth about him. And so we sing psalms and hymns of praise, spiritual songs with thankfulness. 
<coughs> now you might be thinking, well, what are spiritual songs anyways here? And spiritual songs emphasize a personal testimony. All right? Um, they're testimonial songs. For example, you have one of them in uh, Revelation chapter 5, 9 through 10, where we get a picture. We actually sing this song. I think it's referred to as a revelation song that we sing. It starts in verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. See, it's a testimony. Look at what the Lord has done for us. You've ransomed us. You, you've delivered us out of darkness by your blood. You've made us a kingdom. And we are going to reign with you. And so it's largely and uniquely addressed to God in our singing of praises to him. And so what Paul's saying here is when the church comes together, if the word of Christ is truly dwelling in you richly, it will be stoking the fires of your, your soul and there will be a thankfulness that will ascend upward from your heart and you'll have no choice but to sing praises to the Lord. And as you are singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, you will also be ministering to one another. For as you're joining your voices together, you're reinforcing to me and who's ever sitting next to you these truths as I hear you singing, blessed be the Lord. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Crown him with many crowns. Holy, holy, holy. Magnify the Lord with me. And that is just really tightening down the, the screws in my mind and in my heart as I hear all of you singing that and it just lifts my souls to want to do the same for you. And so as we look at this verse, let me just try to put a bow around this quickly and a couple truths about um, our corporate worship. Number one, our worship needs to be theologically sound. Jesus said in John 4, 23, the hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. So our worship needs to be rooted in truth. Um, we're not to be singing the wisdom of the world here. That's kind of a thing you see, like churches will warm up with, um, you know, just some rock song from, you know, Rock 101 and, and kind of get everyone in the mood and going. Um, that's not honoring the Lord at all. Um, we're to be singing truth about Christ and who God is. Second, our worship should be intentionally varied. That's why it says there, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So many churches have become kind of one-dimensional in their singing. It ends up cutting out either the, the younger part of the church or the older generation of the church. But here we see there's to be a variety of songs. And so it's to be equally meaningful for the congregation as a whole to worship the Lord. So I thought that was kind of special and unique to this text. Third, our worship is to be upward focused, meaning we are singing to the praises of God. That's what matters. Is God pleased with our worship? 
That's the question. It's not, will the world like it? The question is, does it honor God? That's it. That's it. Because at the end of the day, it is all for him. And then finally, number four, is it sincerely felt? Notice once again, the end of verse 16, singing, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And worship should be informed by our thankfulness to God. Why are you not singing and thanking God? Has he not been good to you? So, it's not just about going through these empty motions of, oh, the singing part, you know, I'm here for the, the, the word, you know. Uh, but rather, we should be preparing our hearts for worship, and therefore, we sing with the conviction and gratitude and thankfulness in our hearts to God. Make a joyful noise. I love Psalms 101 through 3 that says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So as Paul is closing out this little section that began all the way back in verse 1, it's pretty clear what he's saying. He's saying there's some uh, basic qualities that should mark the life of of every new man, the peace of Christ in verse 15, the word of Christ in verse 16, and then lastly, the name of Christ we see in verse 17, the name of Christ. Notice what it says. <clears throat> and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Listen, the, the simplest, most basic rule of thumb for living a life that's obedient to Christ is that whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And what that means is everything that I do and everything that I say must be in alignment with who Jesus is and what Jesus has taught and how Jesus lived. Do everything in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Essentially what Paul is saying here is that in order to put on the new self, we must put on Christ. Which is exactly what it says in Romans 13, verse 14. Listen to this. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. All my actions, all my um, conversations, uh, all my thoughts need to be in a tight, um, alignment with the holy character of Jesus Christ. And this is another way of saying to live your life under the lordship of Christ. Right? That the entirety of my life must be lived in the name of Christ. That there cannot be a, a detached part of my life over here somewhere that's not being governed or controlled by Christ. So he is the standard for everything I say and everything that I do. Um, this is in some way a restatement of Leviticus 19.2. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Um, Jesus reinforced, uh, reinforced uh, this truth on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, uh, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So God is the standard. Perfection is the standard. God will not bring the standard down to our level 
where it is reachable, he keeps this standard at perfection. 1 Peter 1.15 But as he who was called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And so this is a truth set in several different ways throughout both the Old and New Testaments. But God does not leave us on our own. He has given us the same Holy Spirit that has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He has given us graces upon grace to help to enable us and equip us to make progress towards that standard. And though we will never reach perfection, certainly on this side of glory, yet it is nevertheless God's will for our life to follow his. That, in a way, is what Paul is saying here, that whatever you do in word or deed, must, it must be done in the name or according to the name, in perfect conformity to the name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he concludes it by once again giving thanks. Giving thanks. What do we give thanks for? We give thanks for God's grace. We give thanks that he gives and is enabling us to live in this manner. We give thanks for forgiveness. We give thanks as his mercies are new every day. We are to know, we are to be known as thankful people with hearts of gratitude. We should be always focused upon not what we don't have, but what we have in Christ. We are so rich in Christ. And this thankfulness, he says, is to be expressed through him. The hymn here refers to Jesus Christ who is the only mediator between God and men, and who has opened up the only access to come before the throne of grace. So this thankfulness is to be expressed through Christ to God the Father as he has opened up the only way to the Father. And so this is what it looks like to live a, a Christ-centered life. And these should be a mark of every true believer. We should desire these. The peace of Christ ruling in our hearts, letting us know when we're out of bounds, when we're off the track. The word of Christ dwelling in you richly to the extent that it, it flows out of you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And the name of Christ, which really becomes the determining factor for everything we do in both word and in deed. There is a, a glorious simplicity about the Christian's life as is it really reduced down to one word Christ Christ he's at the very center of your life he is the example of your life he is the teacher of your life he is the Lord of your life he is the Savior of your life he is the one who has redeemed you and so as you walk through this world you walk in such a way as to follow Christ. And if you don't know Christ, if you don't know Christ, you are on the wrong track. The wrong track. You're going in the wrong direction. And there will be devastating eternal consequences that are awaiting you if you do not know Jesus Christ. But today, if God's sovereign call is upon your heart, you will forsake the world. You will not leave here the same. 
there will be a light that has opened up your eyes and ears to the things of God. The things before you hated, you would now love. And you will commit your life to Jesus Christ. And he would immediately give you all peace. He would remove the weight of sin from you. He would pardon you from your iniquities. He would move into your life and bring you a peace that surpasses all understanding. He'd bring joy and thankfulness to your heart. He'd give you a new song and a new name. Your problems and trials may not all go away. In fact, there may even be some new ones. But you will now have the greatest treasure, which is Christ walking with you through this life to guide you, to direct you as the Spirit fills you. And one day when you come to the end of your life's journey, you will go home to be with Christ. And so if you've never believed in Christ, if you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, I call on you now this very moment to take a step of faith out of this domain of darkness, to beg the Lord to deliver you out of it and to come all the way to Jesus Christ, to entrust him with your soul, to repent of your sins and turn in the direction of Christ. Today could be your greatest day of your life. If you are in needs of prayers this morning or the call of God is on your heart, be happy to speak or pray with you. I want to invite you to please stand and let's sing praises to the Lord and thank the Lord Jesus Christ as we praise him at the cross. Thank you. <laughs>